turn in your Bibles to the book of 2 Samuel this morning. 2 Samuel, and we're going to look at uh, chapter 11. And I want to talk about uh, David this morning in light of things... I'm going to go ahead and turn this off. Okay. We'll use this one. Better? And we're going to talk about uh, David today. And uh, David, as you know, and we say this quite often... He was a man after God's own heart. Uh, there may be some of you who don't know why he was called that. Is that just a <clears throat> name that we have given him? Uh, actually, it's not. It's what God said about him. I'm going to read you a verse of scripture from 1 Samuel. When the kingdom was taken away from King Saul, this is what God said in 1 Samuel 13, 14. But now your kingdom shall not continue, he says to Saul. <clears throat> the Lord has sought for himself, listen to this, a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be commander over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. So that, of course, is a reference to David, who would be Saul's successor in years to come. A man after God's own heart is not just a title for him. That's what God said about him. Boy, don't you wish that the Lord could say that about you, that you are a person after his own heart. This is a special man. This is an unusual man. This is a great man. And this is also a man who was also very humble. When we think about David, some people want to know in this story, how old was he? Well, David was about 30 when he became the king, and he reigned in uh, Hebron for seven and a half years before coming to Jerusalem. That would make him about 37 at that point. And during that time, we know that from what we read in 2 Samuel 11, he was walking on the roof of his palace. Well, it takes time to build a palace. In fact, I think Solomon took about 13 years to build his palace. David probably didn't take that long, but we know there would be several years that would be involved in all of that. And so we speculate and say that at this point in David's life, he's probably in his mid to late 40s, certainly old enough to know better than to do what he did. He's not an 18-year-old kid who falls into uh, hormone-driven uh, lust or something like that. He's an older man. He's an established middle-aged man now. He's walked with God for a long time. He's this man that was after God's own heart, after all. We uh, think about him as being the psalm writer. Out of 150 psalms, David didn't write all of them, but he wrote 75 of the 150 psalms. This is quite a guy that we're talking about here. We're not talking about somebody who was half pagan. We're not talking about somebody who was halfway committed to the Lord. We're talking about somebody who loved the Lord, followed the Lord, worshiped the Lord, and was committed to the Lord. Now, I say all of that because if this could happen to David, then it can happen to any of us, including myself, right? And it's something that we have to be on guard about as we um, live our lives. Because I don't think David ever had anything in his mind where he planned for this, 
where he schemed for this. It wasn't like he got online and started searching out different things. It wasn't like he got together with somebody who was as ungodly and, and planned out something like this. This isn't anything that he really thought he was... Well, probably if you had asked David about it earlier in his life, he would have said, no, I'll never do anything like that because it never entered his mind. But it says in 2 Samuel 11, if we go to verse 1, that it happened in the spring of the year at the time when kings go off to war uh, or go to battle that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. Everybody else had to go, but David decided not to go. In other words, and they destroyed the people of Ammon and besieged Rabbah and David remained at Jerusalem. And then it happened, verse 2, it happened one evening that David arose from his bed, some translations say his couch, and that's where he was relaxing and resting and that kind of thing. And he walked on the roof of the king's house, his palace. And from the roof he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful to behold. And David sent and inquired about the woman. So this isn't something that's going to be easy to be kept as a secret because he sent somebody to inquire and it says uh, picking up on the text again and someone said is this not Bathsheba the daughter of Eliam the wife of Uriah the Hittite and David sent messengers okay now it's even less private and less contained and took her and she came to him, and he lay with her, for she was cleansed from her impurity, and uh, she returned to her house. Okay, all zipped up, nice and neat. Nobody's going to know. It was just one time and one time only. Verse 5, and the woman conceived. Uh-oh, now the whole story has changed. And I want you to put yourself in David's shoes. So she sent and told David and said, I am with child. I wonder what David felt like when he got that message. Because up until this point, we don't get the idea that this is anything he set out to do. But... He didn't necessarily walk away from it when he could have either, did he? You see, when you look at this, it's not that David was, uh, I think I'll go up at the, uh, on the rooftop and then I can, you know, be a voyeur and see what I can see. The king's palace was obviously the nicest house in town, usually built upon a hill, usually multi-story, and uh, so it would be higher than any place else. Now, in the, the days that this is written, the rooftop was probably your most private place. People would sleep on their roof and they would bathe on their roof. They would maybe change clothes on their roof because nobody could see up there. Except when you have the palace and you're up above everybody else and you're walking around on your roof, you look down and then you happen to see. Now, Jesus told us, 
that when a man looks upon a woman to lust after her, he's committed adultery in his heart. This sin that David committed started long before he ever sent messengers or inquired who the woman was or sent messengers to get her. Uh, it happened in his heart. It's that second look, guys, that's going to get you. And David looked with the intention of lusting after her, and that's when he committed adultery in his heart. Well, why was he walking on the roof? Well, remember, even kings then didn't have air conditioning. And everybody's gone to war. There's not a whole lot to do. And he's been, um, you know, laying around on his bed or couch, whatever you want to call it. He's been relaxing, maybe watching Netflix, I don't know. But uh, he's bored. And there's not really anything else to do. It might have been, you know, kind of a, you know, one of those uh, warm spring, humid nights. And he decides he's going to get up and go walk on the roof. I don't know why. I'm just speculating. Use a little sanctified imagination. You can imagine why he would do that. Maybe he couldn't sleep. Maybe he's thinking about the battle. It might have even been that when he first starts walking around the roof, he's praying for Joab. Might be that he's praying for his family. Might be that he is maybe composing another psalm. We don't know. Could be. And then something catches his eye. And instead of turning away from it and going back downstairs where he couldn't see anything, he lingers and he takes that second look and then everything spirals downward for this man who God himself said was a man after God's own heart. And after all, by this point in his life, when we talk about David, think about uh, all of his achievements and his accomplishments. This, after all, is, um, well, among other things, he's a guy who has written a lot of psalms, as we said, and led worship, you know, that type of thing. Think of the people that he had influenced, um, Back in the days when he was running from Saul, all of those men that he gathered, the army that he had with him, the mighty men of valor that he had with him, David had tremendous impact on all of those people, much less after he became king, you can imagine. Think of his victories. I mean, after all, this is the guy that when he was in junior high, killed a giant that terrified the armies of Israel. This is a guy that had... Psalms, uh, songs written about him. Saul has slain his thousands, but David his tens of thousands. I mean, there's a whole list of them that you can look at and you can think about. And one of the things that I know didn't happen is when David was up there on that roof plotting all of that, when it entered his heart and entered his mind and he acted on it, he certainly wasn't thinking of his wives or of his children, was he? He wasn't thinking about the consequences of sin. He wasn't thinking about the price that he would have to pay. In his mind, I'm sure he's thinking, this will be just one time. We'll get it over with. It'll be fun. And nobody will ever have to know. But he had involved people in it already. Who is that? Now, have you ever thought about the fact that when he said, who is that? He had somebody looking over the roof of the palace down on Bathsheba while she was bathing as well. So he involved somebody else in his own sin. And then when he decided that he wanted her, he sent messengers. How is she supposed to refuse messengers from the king? You've been summoned by the king. 
And all of this is kind of a power play, and it's very, very, very ugly and uh, very terrible. And um, so this all happens. I mean, how could this guy do this? How could something like this happen to a man like this? And uh, we are all a lot closer to falling than we realize, except for the grace of God, right? Think of all of the worship services he had led. And everybody that finds out about this, even the people that were involved in all of it, can you imagine them thinking, boy, just last Saturday he was, you know, leading us in singing to the Lord and holiness and purity and all of that. Wow, how far they have fallen. Hypocrite, they might have said. And you think about all of the judgment that he has made against other people. You see, one of the one of the roles of the king was to settle court cases. I wonder how many cases of divorce. I wonder how many cases of adultery. I wonder how many cases of other types of immorality David had sat in judgment over. And now he is guilty of it. He is a participant in it. And he knew what the law of God required for the sins that he had committed. Because in Psalm 51 he said... Deliver me from blood guilt. You know what that means? Deliver me from capital punishment. He knew that he deserved to die for what he had done. And this is so very unexpected by him. Well, let's talk about what caused this downward spiral. This is for everybody today to take stock, to consider your ways, as we said, and... Um, it's especially for the men, but it also fits with the women as well. What happened to him? Well, the first thing that I have now is he had a, a compartmentalization in his thinking. You know what that means? It's the idea that, well, it happened in the spring of the year, the time when kings go to battle. Gee, I wonder why he wasn't going to battle. What had happened with him? And in his mind, he has achieved enough, and he is at a place where he's tired of fighting, he doesn't need to go, he can send someone else and it'll be just as good. He justified it in his mind and he didn't see it as bad or wrong, he didn't see it as letting his people down, and he certainly didn't see it as dangerous to himself. And men have this unique ability to compartmentalize things. And what we do in all of that is we say, well, this one thing has nothing to do with the other. You see, David would never connect at this point that had he been at war, he would not have been on the roof. Had he been with his soldiers, he would not have committed adultery with Bathsheba, and his whole life would have changed. The whole story would have changed, but he didn't put two and two together he didn't think one thing had anything to do with another. Now, men are like that. It's just another isolated incident. It doesn't have anything to do with the other thing. And that's why a man can uh, have an affair and yet say at the same time, but I love my wife. You see, he's got them in two different compartments. And we have a lot of compartments. You say, well, why would God make you all like that? Well, number one, we're a little bit brain damaged. Okay. 
They say that when a baby is in the womb, there are all kinds of connecting fibers between the two halves of the brain. And when the little boy, when the testosterone uh, is applied to him, it knocks out a lot of those connecting fibers. And that's why we have trouble going back and forth. We're a little bit brain damaged. But um, nonetheless, we're also like that for another purpose. How does a man on D-Day in World War II take a weapon, jump off of a landing craft, into water, into machine gun fire. How do you get men to do that? Because men are able to take all of their thoughts about home and about their wife or girlfriend or children, if the case, as the case may be, and shove that into the back closet, shut the door, and then focus on the mission. That's why men have been predominantly the warriors and the protectors for all of our history because we can shut off certain things and turn on things and move on through and do that. Well, David used this to his detriment. He didn't think about the fact that had he gone to battle, all of his life would be changed. And while he's up there on the roof looking at Bathsheba, he is able to kind of shut that door of his life and do what he wants to do. The definition of the uh, noun compartmentalization is a division of something into sections or categories. Now, I've gotten uh, put, I've put in, uh, put in, good night. Uh, I have put some things down there to give you an idea. You know, we tend to say, well, here's the spiritual and here's the secular. You think maybe David did that at this point? We have certain ways that you would never talk in church, but you do on the job, or you do at school, or you do at home. Why? Oh, well, this is the Lord's house. You know, actually, it's not. Actually, this is the gathering place for those of us who are believers, and your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. You are the Lord's house. You're His temple. And so that means everywhere you go, you represent the Lord and you're to live for His glory. We kind of do those kind of things. We separate public from private. Well, I would never do what I think in private or what I do in private. I would never do that in a public setting because we compartmentalize our lives. This is the spiritual, so I'll do spiritual things. Okay, glad that's over. Now we're into the secular. Now I'll do secular things, and we don't understand. It's all supposed to go together. And that's what we find that David may have been doing here as he was talking. And so this man who challenged Goliath and killed Philistines in battle is now leaving it to someone else in a presumption of victory. He presumes Joab can handle it. And this is one of those cases where he's not willing to go to war. But did you notice it said all Israel went to war? And I remember Paul Harvey years ago saying, we'll never get rid of wars as long as old men can send young men to fight the battles. And that's what David was doing, wasn't he? Leave it to somebody else. Let somebody else fight the battle. And men, no one can fight your battles but you. And don't neglect to go to war for yourself and for your family and always be on guard. There is no such thing as doing warfare in the morning and being done with it the rest of the day. Your life is a warfare. You are doing warfare by living. You are doing warfare by 
opposing the enemy. You are doing warfare by living the truth and doing the glory of God. It's an all-day, 24-7 thing. You've got to take every thought captive. And as far as I know, all of us have thoughts all day long. It's not just something we do one and done. It's continual. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 10, 6 through 13. Now these things became our examples uh, to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. And do not become idolaters as were some of them. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Nor let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 fell. Nor let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by serpents. Nor complain, anybody complain lately? As some of them also complained and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now, all these things happened to them as examples and they were written for our admonition or warning upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man, but God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you were able, but with the temptation will also make a way of escape that you may be able to bear or endure it. Are temptations easy? No. But God has promised that while life may be more than we can handle, the temptations are not. David could have escaped this just like you could escape as well in your sins. And David doubtless had sinned countless times before like we do, but this one got him. This one tripped him up. And this is the one where he thought he could do it, get away with it. He didn't really have to be at battle. Someone else could handle it. It'll be okay. And he's going to do this just this one time. No big deal. A lot of people have done a lot worse. And I can handle it. After all, I'm the king. It didn't work so well. He thought he stood. And what happened to him? He fell. And he fell hard. Still happening today, by the way, for a lot of God's people, isn't it? Number two, the next thing that led to David's spiral was what I call success. And it says that he sent Joab and his servants with him. How come he could do that? Because he was king. He had made it to the top, to the pinnacle. Now, there was a time when David was a humble shepherd. There was a time when David was running for his life and living in caves, but not anymore. He's unified all 12 tribes of Israel. They've moved the capital to Jerusalem. They built a palace. He's gathered uh, the materials that Solomon is going to use for the temple. Everything is hunky-dory. Everything is great. He's arrived. He's achieved it. He's an older man now. He's got everything under control. He's got his family and his kingdom. Everything is cool. And he's even got so much power, he can send someone else to do his fighting for them. And look what happened. They destroyed 
destroyed the people of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. What's happening there? There's military victory. There's financial victory. There's political victory. There's just, I mean, everything he's done has uh, had the Midas touch. It's turned to gold. Everything has been blessed for him. But Proverbs 37 through 9, David's son would say, Two things I ask of you, Lord. Do not refuse me before I die. Keep falsehood and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. Otherwise, I may have too much and disown you and say, Who is the Lord? Or I may become poor and steal and so dishonor the name of my God. Solomon understood that wherever we are in life, and even with the blessing of God, we are so depraved, we can take even the blessing of God and find a way to pervert it and use it in the wrong way. How many times have we seen people say, Oh, preacher, pray for me that I'll get a new job. I need more money. And so we pray, they get a new job, and all of a sudden now they don't have time for church. They don't have time for ministry. They don't have time for service. They're too busy in what they're doing. We do this kind of thing all the time. We pray for God to give us children, and then we make idols of our children. And instead of parenting them and leading them in the ways of the Lord, we follow them and indulge them, and everything gets turned around. Well, I think David is a pretty good example of that. And by the way, Solomon is too, because uh, he certainly got himself in trouble. But nonetheless, what he writes in the Proverbs is true. We need to be in that place to where we're not so poor that we steal and dishonor God, but we're not so well off that we forget about God. And in America, I think even the middle class is in that category where we can be so well off we forget about God. Life's good. The temperature's right in my house. I've got water and it's clean. I got hot water when I need it. I've got cold stuff whenever I need it. I've got food whenever I need it. I've got extra money in the in the account. I've got an automobile. I've got all of these things. What what do I have to depend upon God for? What do I have to ask God for unlike previous generations? And so we forget God and we get into trouble. So I would say and suggest that in David's success by the blessing and the hand of God, that was a part of what played uh, some of the trouble in his mind. David didn't do right with the blessing of God. He perverted it and he used it for his own selfish gains. And so be careful whenever you become successful and think that you've got it made, you just might be in trouble. Number three, I've got the word isolation, then in parenthesis, withdrawal. David remained in Jerusalem. David remained in Jerusalem. When you start pulling back, pulling away, isolating yourself, something bad is going to happen. We're made to be accountable. We're made to have iron sharpening iron so we can sharpen each other. We're made to be in community. We're made to be in relationships. And if you're married, it's not just that you go, well, I'm tired of being alone. I'll remind you, it was God who said about Adam, it's not good for the man to be alone. And so you need to be, whether you're single or married, you need to be in some type of accountability relationship to some degree. Ecclesiastes 4, 9 through 12, to quote David's son again, he says, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor. For if they fall, someone will lift up his companion. 
But woe to him who is alone when he falls, for he has no one to help him up. Again, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one be warm alone? Though one may be overpowered by another, two can withstand him, and a threefold cord is not quickly broken. You know, there's a story about an Indian chief that came to an army general, and he came with arrows, and he gave the general an arrow and said, break this arrow, and with effortlessly the arrow was broken. And then the uh, chief handed him a bunch of arrows and said, now break those, and the general couldn't break them, and he said, there is strength in unity. Well, that's just a principle of life, and that's what Solomon was talking about. We do better when we are in relationship with other people, but when we isolate ourselves, especially as men, we get into trouble. When we spend too much time alone, when we spend, spend too much time away from other people, too much time on the computer, for example, those kind of things can become a problem for us. And so David now, all of his men, all of the people that he really trusts and work with, they're all out in the battle, and David is alone, and that ends up being a problem for him, just like it will end up being a problem for you. You need some people to pray for you. You need some people to know what you're going through. You need some people people to help you. You need some people to laugh with. You need some people to confide in. You were just made to have these people all around us. And uh, so as I look at David, I'm starting to see how he kind of uh, had a, a setup here. And then the fourth thing that I noticed is that there seems to be boredom. Men are not made to be bored and we don't handle boredom very well at all. I've noticed that uh, whenever we uh, had our children and whenever our grandchildren have been born, it's just been carried on. I've noticed that you ladies, you love little bitty babies and little infants. I do too, but not like you do. I like them when they get a little bit older. I like them when you can play with them and when they respond. You know what I mean? To set and hold a sleeping infant... For an hour or two hours or three hours is just boring. And yet, ladies, you wish for those days, don't you? You love it when they're little and you can hold them and do those kind of things, okay? I know that if I were a person like David, can you imagine if you've ever known a type A personality, I think it would be King David. I mean, after all, this is the, the kid, the boy, when he's watching his father's sheep. Boring. What does he do with his time? He writes psalms unto the Lord. He's got to have something to do. And then he also, by his own testimony, says, and when the lion and the bear came to get the sheep, I just took care of them. I killed them. That's a kid we're talking about. This is amazing. He's always engaged, always doing something, always occupying his time with something good, whether it's fighting battles or writing psalms. He's kind of artistic on one way, and yet, man, is he ever, uh, you know, a strong uh, warrior on the other. 
And even when he stands before Goliath, can you imagine how his heart must have been beating? Can you imagine the adrenaline that is flowing through his body when he's saying, oh, you're not going to stand before him? Well, I will. And uh, Goliath challenges him. What am I, a dog that you bring this boy here to me? I'll feed your flesh and bones to the birds. And David says, oh, really? You come against me with a spear and a sword, but I can't come against you in the name of the Lord of hosts. And, uh, and Goliath falls. David takes his own sword and cuts his head off and takes it to Saul. You're telling me this is not a guy who likes adventure? You're telling me this is not a guy who just has a lot of adrenaline flowing through his body? This is not a, uh, you know, a he-man kind of a person? Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. Are you kidding me? This is a man who likes, this is a man who is made for the battlefield and for the adventures of war and all of these kind of things. But now he's sent other people off to fight his battles and, oh, kind of boring. Not much happening. I think I'll go up on the roof and take a stroll. And then he saw something that got a hold of him and all of a sudden, everything is charged and everything is, is aware and everything is alive and all of that. And that's exactly what David was looking for. Boredom is not a good thing for a man. And so we look at this and think about that it happened that when he arose from his bed and walked on the roof of the king's house. Why? We don't know. It may have been for noble purposes. But from the roof he saw a woman bathing and it was all downhill from there, wasn't it? Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23 through 27, again written by David's son. Is all this any coincidence? Or maybe Solomon learned something from watching his dear old dad? Keep your heart with all diligence... For out of it spring the issues of life. Put away from you a deceitful mouth. See, David is getting ready not only to have a wicked heart, but a lying mouth for over a year until he confesses his sin in Psalm 51. And put perverse lips far from you. Here's a word for David. Let your eyes look straight ahead and your eyelids look right before you. Ponder the path of your feet and let all your ways be established. Do not turn to the right or the left. Remove your foot from evil. David, run downstairs fast. See? You can't compromise with this kind of stuff. It will get you. It will control you. And it will ruin you. Now, this is not Bathsheba's fault. And I don't think that David, when he got trapped in this, had any ill intent. But it got him. His life was never the same. His family was never the same. And can you imagine that day when David has been going to the temple uh, or the tabernacle? He has been doing all kinds of the religious uh, activities that a king has to do for a year. Then the prophet comes up, Nathan the prophet. Hey, old buddy, Nathan, how you doing? Good to see you. God bless you, Nathan. Tell me what the Lord's been doing in your life. I mean, can you imagine how David is talking? 
because he can't let on how miserable he is. Read Psalm 32 and read about David's misery during his sin sometime. And Nathan tells him a story and David, oh, in righteous indignation, that man shall die. Can you imagine when the prophet said, you are the man. And at that point, can you imagine as everything in David came alive saying, he knows, he knows. And David could stand it no longer. And he runs to the tabernacle. And out of that comes a confession of Psalm 51. Now the blessing is that Nathan said, this sin is put away from you. You're not going to die. But there are consequences. The sword will not depart from your household. And David's family life was not real great anyway, but it was a lot worse. He has a son that rapes a half-sister. Then he has a, another son that murders the son that raped the half-sister. And then the son that killed... Boy, this is like singing old lady who swallowed the fly, isn't it? And then the son that killed the brother that raped the sister then drives David out of the palace and out of the capital and he tries to overthrow David and take over his kingdom. I mean, life was not pleasant for David after this because even though God forgives sin, there are still the consequences of sin. David was neutralized. How's he going to really punish a son who has been immoral when David has been so immoral? How is he really going to punish a murderer when David himself had Uriah the Hittite murdered. See, it just kind of neutralizes you, and uh, it, it's hard to deal with those things. And David would, would go either to doing nothing or go to an extreme on things, and his family was just in chaos and in uproar and in sadness and in heartache. You think you have problems in your family? You ever had any of those kind of things happen? And that happened as a result of David's sin. It was never quite the same again. The Bible says, be careful because your sin will find you out and you do reap what you sow. It's not a matter of forgiveness. It's a matter of the consequences. And so we find here that David just, well, the downward spiral had stopped at this point. By the time we get down to verse 3, he's hit the bottom. So David sent and uh, inquired about the woman. And someone said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Uh, folks, should that not have made David just stop? <clears throat> See, when the Bible says there's a way of escape in sins, what it means is there is that point where you should have stopped, could have stopped, it was put right there in front of you, and you didn't. Uh, okay, no, I'm going on. This is the point there for David, isn't it? She's somebody's wife. She's somebody's daughter. And these are people that you know. These are people from your own tribe. They are distantly related to you. Didn't matter to David, not at that point. Then David sent messengers and took her and she came to him. He lay with her. For she was cleansed from her impurity, <clears throat> and she returned to her house. All said and done, what, what could possibly go wrong? And the woman conceived and sent and told David and said, I am with child. 
And when I think about that, I think about how much lower could David go? Not much. But he found a way. I heard someone say one time, when you find yourself stuck in a hole, job number one is to stop digging. But David didn't stop digging, did he? He hit bottom, and then he dug. And he had Uriah the Hittite. Read about it sometime. Had him killed, trying to cover up his sin. Folks, I want to tell you, you... I hope you never find this out. You might be surprised what you will do and to the depths you will go to protect yourself. That's how much you love yourself. David went to the point of murder for self-protection. Didn't do any good, did it? It all came out and he paid a high price. I want to ask you, particularly men today, if you're kind of starting on the downward spiral with any of those things, I hope the Lord got your attention today. Learn from David. Learn from David. Let the Lord remind you of other people, better people than you, who have fallen into sin and things have been ruined. Let the current situation that our family is going through, let it remind you of how easy it is for godly men to fall into sin. None of us are immune. None of us. And ladies, don't just point fingers and say, well, men are pigs. That, that's true. <clears throat> that's true. But that's no excuse for you. Because you can fall into sin as well. And God wants His people to be holy, to worship Him, to honor him, to be a light to the world, not someone that fingers are pointed at, not someone that whispers are made about. And so I just conclude by saying, may God help us or we'll be the next David. May God help us or we will be the next David. If not now, 20 years from now. It doesn't matter. The devil doesn't care. As long as he can make a fool out of you, ruin your family, ruin your testimony, and dishonor God is the main thing. Would you agree with me by saying amen to that? This makes sense? Then would you further do something? Let's come to the altar and let's pray about this before we go home. Because our vulnerabilities are there. And we've got to acknowledge that Christ is our only hope in life and death and in the times of temptation. And oh, by the way, you have a sympathetic high priest when you're tempted in Christ Jesus. David didn't have that. You do. You do. And you have one who is willing to restore you. Because he suffered the wrath of God for that sin that you're engaged in right now. He also is your liberator from that sin. So would you join me in the altar and let's come together and let's pray for ourselves and pray for one another and pray for our families that we wouldn't go through what David is going through now. Will you join me at the altar, please?
And you're not admitting anything when you come to the altar. Don't be afraid of that. Except your dependence upon God and your own human frailty apart from Him. That's all of us. Any age, male or female, rich or poor, single or married, But God is so good. God is so good. I'm going to give you some time to pray. You may have somebody on your mind right now who's in the depths of this type of thing. Pray for them. Pray for yourself. Pray for somebody who's going through a trial of sickness right now. They're vulnerable to this type of thing. Pray for somebody who's lonely. They're vulnerable. But God is able. God is able. God is faithful. He can bring beauty out of ashes. He can restore what the locusts have eaten. Wow, that's wonderful. There's always hope in Jesus. Father, we probably all here have done enough that if people knew, we'd be in a lot of trouble. And the fact is that you do know. And yet you welcome us to restore fellowship <coughs> through the blood of Christ. You're merciful, you're kind, you're gracious, and we will never taste the fires of hell because of what Christ has done for us. And for that, we say thank you. And Lord, we've been so harsh and judgmental toward other people, mean and cruel. And we've also been proud. I would never do that. At least I've never done that. Things like that, we might say. I have wisdom. I would never stoop that low or whatever. Forgive us, Lord, because the only reason we have not is because of you. And the only reason we will not is because of you. And that's why we're coming to you today. Because we can't fight this stuff off in and of ourselves. We have to have the help of the Lord, the strength of the Lord, the grace of God. And we pray. I speak for the men of our church. We pray that we would be men of integrity. Whatever's happened in the past, from this point forward, we would be men of faithfulness and integrity. To the Lord, to our families everywhere. And Lord, we pray for the ladies of our church. And we ask you to show them their vulner vulnerability may be different, but it doesn't mean it's not there. And I pray for them and pray that they wouldn't be damaged. Pray that they would be protected. Pray that they would be helped and pray that they would walk in holiness as well as the men of our church. And that we would be united in this one thing. We may have different battles to fight, but we have the same God with which to fight them. We have the same weapons with which to fight. And our God is a victorious God. And we want to bring glory to his name. Lord, as I think about the situation with Matt. And I think about the other churches that are involved in all of this. May you protect 
And may you bless them. And may you work in his life today. We love him. We pray for Nola. And we pray for Amy. And we pray for Tara. And we pray for Brad and Richard. And we pray for uh, Naomi and Gabe. And we pray for Carson and Aiden. Oh, Father, please protect all of them that are hurt and scarred and touched by all of this. And do a work in their lives that one day we would look back and say, what a glorious thing our God did. And then, Lord, may we be able to stand at the judgment seat of Christ and offer to you a life that is free from what David went through and that we can lay that at your feet and say all the glory goes to you, not to me. May we be submissive and humble and walk with you all the days of our lives. May we pray for one another and we do this in Jesus' name for your glory. And all God's people said, Amen.